This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Well, as, as uh, Thurman said, my name is Bland Mason. I'm very, very uh, grateful to be here today. Um, just want to thank uh, Thurman for uh, letting me come and share. We were uh, planning on coming down uh, for this trip. Um, as, as he mentioned, my family grew up, I grew up in Gloucester. My mom was from Suffolk, graduated from Suffolk High School. My grandparents lived over in Riverview on Jones Street. Uh, until uh, they passed away around 10 years ago. Uh, Parker, Ben Parker, Eleanor Parker were their names. But uh, So we have history here. I mean, just driving up the road, I looked over to the right, and there was the uh, cemetery, and I was like, that's where they are. That's where uh, the whole Parker family is. So uh, this is a little bit like coming home, and I told uh, told the first service. What's ironic is my the sanctuary of the church that I grew up in in Gloucester looks exactly like this. It's laid out exactly like it. I think the the pews are red instead of green. Um, But it's the same size, same layout, organ, piano, and stage, and everything. So um, this is much like coming home for me. Uh, We're going to get into the Word. I want to take a minute to to, uh, just share a little bit about my story uh, so you can understand uh, who I am, what God's called uh, me to do. But then uh, we'll get into God's Word and hopefully unpack a little bit about how you can be involved in mission uh, as well, and then right off the bat, I want to answer a question that may be on some of your minds, and, and this question uh, may be bothering you right now. You're sitting there, and you haven't really heard anything I've said. Uh, you're probably not going to hear anything I have to say today until you get your question answered. And that question is, is your name really Bland? Um, because that is a weird name, right? Uh, it is. Do your parents hate you, or you know? Uh, no, they don't. Um, some of you may know some Blands, and your last name may be Bland. There are Blands in this area of Virginia, and that was one of my great-great-grandmother's maiden name. And so my dad got William Bland Mason Sr. Uh, he goes by William. I'm William Bland Mason Jr. I got stuck with Bland. So, um, no, my parents did not hate me. Um, but I grew up in Gloucester, and as many of you may have done, grew up uh, active in a church like this. I grew up through the, the going to vacation Bible school, which you guys have coming up, and uh, going to youth trips and camps and, and things like that. But as I got into high school, began to really wander from my faith, uh, just stopped really growing in it and started uh, just seeking approval in my identity and in other people and uh, began partying and chasing girls and drinking and, and uh, even doing some pot and goofing off in my classes as much as possible. Uh, and it all came down the end of my senior year where five days before graduation, right around this time of the year, uh, five days before graduation, I found out I was not passing. Uh, my English class, I missed the final by three points. My English teacher, who I later named Ms. Beelzebub, uh, she had the option to round me up, but she rounded me down uh, and flunked me. And I found out my, it was too late for my name to get pulled from the exercise bulletin uh, for commencement, so my name was in there. Uh, and not only that, my name was highlighted with four other people, uh, four of my friends, were, uh, three other friends were singing the Star Spangled Banner. Uh, which at that point during the during the commencement, people looked up and said, well, there's four names here. There's only three on the stage. Who's missing? And sure enough, it was me. Uh, so that was a difficult point in my life. I, I sunk to the, the bottom, um, basically spent my summer going to summer school in the morning and then working in the afternoon and then drinking at night as much as I could 
Uh, it was a very sad point in my life. I was looking for my identity again and people around me. Uh, fortunately, by God's grace, I got into college. Uh, it was a college in North Carolina that was accepting anyone with a pulse at that point. Um, because if you looked at my transcript, it I had a 1.56 GPA. That's on a four-point scale, if you didn't understand. Um, and if you read my transcript, it sounded like... That's what the letter sounded like. So I, I got into this school. Um, I think they would have accepted you without a pulse if you'd prepaid. Um, so fortunately, I got in, and God had a glorious plan because I left for college in mid-August, actually three days after graduation for me, um, left for college, and God put me in the room with a very strong Christian brother who um, was a great example to me. I, ahead of time, he was a, I heard he was a religion major, and I talked to him on the phone. I was a little worried about him because I wasn't really into church at that point. I had to go. But I didn't want to and wasn't really interested. And he, he was saying, oh, yeah, I came to Christ my junior year in co- high school. I'm not from a Christian family, but I'm a religion major. And, and I was like, oh, he better not start, start preaching at me. I'm going to have to beat him up, you know, while we're in college, and that's not going to go well. Then I get there and find out he was a high school football player who was on an all-state high school football team, and he would have beaten me up if it had come down to it. Um, and so he and I ended up, it was a beautiful thing over, over, it wasn't like just at one moment where I just fell on the floor and cried and, you know, gave my heart to Jesus. But over about a month or two, my life radically changed. Uh, I stopped, I, I, I think it was Pastor Johnny Hunt in Atlanta says that uh, God has a way of changing your want-tos. Well, he, he did. He changed my want-tos. I didn't want to, to uh, drink anymore. I did not want to do a lot of those things, began to desire Christ and, and desire to study and learn. And uh, sure enough, my first semester in college, I, I took 16 and a half hours and uh, made dean's list, um, came home. Uh, my parents saw my report card. They were like, oh, we've never seen these letters before. Um, didn't know, didn't know the, these came on a report card. So um, God changed my life in a beautiful way. I went on to uh, be involved with student government my sophomore year, ended up double majoring in business and religion. Um, Met my wife, Teresa, uh, my junior year. Incidentally, today is the anniversary of her 29th birthday. Um, I will let you ask her what anniversary it is, um, but today is her anniversary of her 29th birthday. So, um, But I met her, and we got married uh, 11 days after graduating from uh, Campbell uh, University, where your uh, pastor also went, um, and then went to Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And I don't know if you've ever told God your plans for life, he kind of chuckles just like you do when your two-year-old tells you what they're going to do and when they grow up. I'm like, oh, that's sweet, honey. Um, you know, and, and that's what God did to me. I thought, we'll, we'll go up to Louisville for three years. I'll get my MDiv. We'll come back to this area of Virginia or North Carolina where my wife's family's from, and we'll just settle in because we like this area, and, and you know, I'll just pastor and serve Jesus. Um, so instead, 13 years later, after doing an MDiv and a Ph.D., pastoring two churches, the last one for nine years. It was a county seat Baptist church uh, in Kentucky. Um, God calls me to Boston, uh, calls my family to pack up the fall of 2008. Uh, we moved on November 1, which is a great time because winter is getting ready to start, which is really wonderful time. And then uh, daylight savings time happens. And if you've ever been up to the northeast uh, during daylight savings time, um, it's on the far eastern edge of the time zone, and it's north. So it gets dark at 4.30. Like, we're driving around with our headlights on at 4.30. My wife looks at me and says, did you move us to Alaska or something? Um, so that was a, a challenge. But about a year later, we, uh, we, we started a core group uh, building on Sunday nights in August 2009 and uh, t- met in a Jewish synagogue 
on Sunday night. So I got to preach Jesus just like Paul did in Corinth and uh, some of the other cities. Uh, preach Jesus in a Jewish synagogue. And then uh, after a year in August of 2010, we launched on Sunday morning in an elementary school gym. Uh, and we've been rolling along. And this year, this fall, we are prepared to launch our first uh, church plant. Not because we're big, but because the city needs it and God's given us a church planter. So we're basically going to tithe our congregation, uh, which is small, much smaller than you guys, uh, tithe our congregation and, and see what Jesus can do. And um, I'll tell you a little bit more about why Boston in a moment, but we're going to, um, we're going to get in God's Word uh, to see how God, what we're doing, and this is huge for me and one of the reasons we're up there, because we felt like what we're doing is part of what God's doing in the world. Not like we're doing anything that's the end of anything. We're just part of a greater story. So turn to Genesis 12. Um, we're going to start there in just a moment, and I'm going to pray. So let's, let's pray together. Uh, Jesus, thank you for this time that we could uh, look at your word. Um, I pray it would speak clearly. I pray you would speak uh, loudly, much louder than me. I pray that you would uh, open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts to hear, see, and receive what you have to say to us this day, Lord. Uh, for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. So one of the most powerful things that happened to me in my way of thinking as a Christian was not something that happened uh, really in a seminary class. It was through just studying God's Word and, and, and reading God's Word and reading some good books on God's Word. But it, it really came down to, to seeing the overarching story of Scripture. Now, if today you don't know the overarching story of Scripture, if you can't in 10 seconds, describe what God's doing from Genesis to Revelation, then you don't know the story of history. And you don't know the story. So, so how can you know what your part in the story is if you don't know what God's story is in history? And that's one of the reasons why we're go- what we're going to talk about today is so important. Um, and, and that is, in particular, to understand that um, this life or what God is doing um, is so much greater than us, and he invites us in to be a part of that story. We don't naturally think about a big story like that. I mean, honestly, we don't think about outside of our own little sphere. Um, and one of the reasons why is because we live in the most individualistic culture that's ever existed in history. I mean, just ask sociologists, we are. We process life with our own lens of ourselves first. And, and unfortunately, our culture believes in this more and more and more that individual self-esteem versus the idea of family self-esteem or, or a, a group or town or community self-esteem, um, that's the way the rest of the world thinks. But here we say the individual is key. Your fulfillment, your esteem. And so we raise children in that. Now we tell them that the most important thing they can do is feel good about themselves, right? So we're, whatever, 17th in the world in math and 25th in the world in language. But we are number one in self-esteem, true story. So we can't add and we can't read, but we feel good about ourselves. And, and so when we grow up in that, we, we, we process the world that way and we think the world's about us until we get into high school and begin to realize, well, not everybody's trying to get in on my story. And my mom and dad said I was so important and they organized the whole family around me and I never had to sacrifice anything for the family because the family did everything for me. So then my friends don't do that, and my teacher doesn't do that, and school doesn't do that. Then they get to college, and the same thing happens. And what happens is they start to get disenchanted because the story that they've been told, that's the most important story, your story, is not, does not bear out in reality. So what happens is they go, and they go, well, that's, 
not working. I'm not the center of the world. So I'll just try to carve out some happiness in life. And so they go through the rest of life. But I'm convinced most of them believe that there's something greater going on. And that's the story we're talking about today. It's the grand story of all of Scripture and all of history. And the key to understanding this story is really simple. And I know you may, you, uh, it sounds like, well, you have to go to seminary to understand this. No, you don't. If you go home and you get on your computer and you type in, you go to like BibleGateway.com or somewhere like that, a Bible website, and type in the word nations, search scripture for the word nations, you will see one of the most comprehensive words through scripture. The word nations shows up through the whole, all of scripture. I believe it's one of the threads of scripture to understand what's going on in the world. And here's what I'm going to show you today. From the beginning of God of, of, of the Bible to the very end, God has always had and always will have a plan for the nations. So let's, let's look at these. And three movements today, I call this the 40,000-foot view of Scripture. Number one is God's mission. Number two is our mission. And number three is the completed mission. So number one, God's mission. God's mission is really simple, actually. To redeem for himself a family from every tribe, tongue, and nation on earth. That's, that's his plan. If you, if you want to ask God what he, what he gets up in the morning for, to, it is to glorify his name by redeeming a people for himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation on earth. Now, the, we're in Genesis 12, but anybody remember what happens in Genesis 11? It's the story of the Tower of Babel. That's right. We all went to VBS, right? Um, Tower of Babel. Now, what's, what's so interesting is at the Tower of Babel, all of humanity's together. I don't know if you realize that, but all of the people in the world are in one place. Now, if God was going to redeem mankind, and that was just his plan to just redeem a group of people who all looked alike and acted alike and had the same culture, and he wanted to do that, he could have done that right then and there, but he didn't. So instead, he confounded the nations and the people and sent them around the world. Why? Because in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, he told man, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. In other words, God had a plan for people to spread all over the whole earth, not to live in one place. And so he wanted the diversity that happens as people move. So God's plan in Genesis 12 picks up with one person, one man. Not the huge crowd he had in Genesis 11, but with one man, Abraham. In verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 3, he says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, that's not a national blessing. If you listen to it, it doesn't say, and in you the nation of Israel will be blessed. No, he says all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, that gives us a little clue, but just if you look at a couple uh, uh, chapters later, or a few chapters later in Genesis 22, just flip over your Bible there. Genesis 22 in verse 18, I love that sound, by the way. My church, we all, they all have phones, so we don't hear the pages flipping. They're all looking at their uh, apps. Um, so Abraham, God tells Abraham again, and that, by the way, you parents that have to tell your kids two or three times, God told Abraham multiple, multiple times this same truth. So if you have to tell your kids, you're just being godlike, okay? So you're being like God, telling your kids the same thing over and over again. God said, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, verse 18, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. 
Now, right then and there you go, okay, well, that sounds nice. The word offspring is singular, but it could be a, a singular collective. In other words, it's a word where we would say offspring really means all of, all of his offspring. And if that's all we had, that's what we would say. But Paul tells us in the book of Galatians something very important here. In Galatians 3.16, don't turn there, you don't have time, but just listen. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say unto offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring who is, any guesses? It's always Jesus, right? Jesus is always the answer. It's the Sunday school answer. I always tell my people, just answer Jesus. You'll be right one way or another. Um, Jesus, Jesus is that offspring. So in other words, here we are in Genesis 12 and Genesis 22. God has told Abram, the first follower of God, really, that, that he is going to bless all the nations through one offspring. And, and, and Paul tells us that offspring was Jesus. So God's had a plan for the nations even in Genesis 12. Unfortunately, in the Christian story, a lot, of us, a lot of us understand that idea of Jesus coming and Him blessing, but we don't tend to think of Him blessing all the nations. We, we, we do it because we, 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 we understand salvation through the individualistic lens of our culture. So it's Jesus came for me, and Jesus died for me, and Jesus redeemed me, and Jesus is coming again for me. And while all of that is true, it's only part of it. You see, the Bible talks far more about Jesus' purpose for His people. See, He didn't die for a bunch of individuals. He died for a people. And His death doesn't, isn't effective for you individually. It's effective for all of His people collectively. It's not just for you. Yes, there is an individual dimension. But it's not, it's not just Jesus and you. When you become a Christian, you're brought into a family, God's family, that's part of His mission. And that's so important to understand. So that's God's mission, to redeem for Himself a family. The reason you're here right now is because He's been redeeming for Himself a family. Verse 2 brings us, or part 2, is our mission. So God's mission is redeeming a family. Our mission is to join God in His mission by making disciples of the nations. Now we're skipping two-thirds of the way through the Bible. Some of you are worried because we're like, wow, this is going to take a long time. He's in Genesis. Um, Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20. Now Jesus, he's died on the cross. He's risen from the grave. He's got 120 followers right now, and he's talking to them. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There's that word again. You're talking 1,500, maybe 2,000 years since God had promised to Abraham that God would bless all the nations through him, uh, through his offspring. Now, now uh, Jesus has come, and what does he tell his disciples? Go to all the nations. This is, this is the start, starting of the real fulfillment of this promise that God gave many years before. Now, the word nations, it's important to understand that when the Bible uses the word nations, especially here in Matthew, it's not referring to the geopolitical organizations that you see uh, gathered at the UN or on a map if you look at a world map. 
Because let's face it, those change all the time, right? Like, is it Miramar that's changed like three times in our lifetime, Thurman? It's, you know, I can't remember the name of the, the country. It's like Burma and then Miramar and Burma and Miramar. Uh, and, and so it's not that. What the word, what the word um, in the Greek is the word ethne, which is where we get our word ethnic from or ethnicity. And so what, what Paul or what Jesus was saying here is go to all the peoples, go to all the ethnic groups in the world and preach the gospel to them. Now, you might think, well, what do those look like? Well, I can tell you right here, right now, in this community, in this area, there's at least two ethnic, there are two people groups or ethnic groups. Now, ethnic group is not language because langu- you can have... Uh, black, white, Asian, who all share a common language, and they actually share a common ethnicity in terms of the gospel can flow between them without any problems because they've lived in the same culture for a long time. But here locally, there's at least two. There's the predominant one, the English-speaking American one, and then there are is a Hispanic population, isn't there? And that Hispanic population doesn't integrate real well with the English-speaking American population here. That means they are their own ethnic group, That is a representation of what Jesus was talking about here. Go to every little group like that and preach the gospel. Make disciples. Um, And what's great is the church did what they were told. Imagine that. The pastor got up, Jesus, first senior pastor, last senior pastor of all the churches, and he preached, and they went and did what he said. They went and made disciples. And the reason that you are a Christian, if you're a Christian here today, is because somebody made disciples who made disciples who made disciples who made disciples who, and we'll go on and so on and so forth, and you're here. See, the gospel didn't terminate on whoever talked to you. They carried out the mission. And the early church went from 120 believers in the, in the Roman Empire gathered in, and you think America's hostile? I mean, the Roman Empire was extremely hostile, very pluralistic, very sexually immoral. And, and this little group of Christians could have been intimidated by that, but instead, in three centuries, they went from 120 Christians to now being the official religion of the Roman Empire. And to give you a little perspective, I know it's like, well, how big was that? We're talking 65 to 75 million people living on three continents and a group of 120 Christians in three centuries impacted that whole population. How? Well, let me tell you how they didn't. It wasn't because they elected a Christian emperor. They didn't sit around and go, if we could just get a Christian emperor in office, then the Christian emperor could make Christian laws so we can make more Christians. And they didn't elect a, a, a Christian supreme court of the Roman Empire. You know, how, you know how the Roman Empire became Christian? Christianity has always grown grassroots. It's never been a power structure. It's never worked well when Christianity has been legislated top down. It always moves better ground up. And, and this, I know this is not encouraging because we're all thinking about how our country's going, but the truth is Christianity does a lot better under persecution than it does under prosperity. You go around the world and you see where the gospel is growing. There are more Christians in Iran right now than there have been in 2,000 years. That's a country that's not exactly opening the doors and inviting the Christians in. But the gospel's growing there. And that's what needs to happen even in our nation. Not, I'm not against, God knows we need some Christian politicians. Um, but I'm not, I'm not against them. But that shouldn't be our hope. Our hope should be that Christians 
carry the gospel to their neighbors the way God intended. Now, I look at Boston, and I'm at, you might be thinking, well, what's Boston like? Boston is 2.5% evangelical Christian. 2.5%. There are European cities that are, have more Christians per capita than Boston. And you might be thinking, well, isn't that a wealthy city? Isn't it an educated city? And it is. But God's not, I, my God is not intimidated by that. My God's not looking down at some Ph.D. from MIT going, man, he's so smart. I mean, what do scientists study anyway? They study the stuff that God made. Now, who's smarter, the one who made the stuff or the one who studies the stuff that was made? I think the one that made it smarter. And I actually see him right now moving among the population in the city. I mean, we have, gosh, we have a, neuro, uh, a brain surgeon from Stanford in our church. We have some crazy smart people, Ph.D. students at all the schools around the area. And God is doing something. It's slow, but that's healthy. It's, it's a real steady growth around the city. And I'm not, I don't believe God's intimidated. What we want to see there is not sitting on a hill blow up and become some megachurch. The reason we're planting a church, even though we're really not ready, in a sense, um, is because the city needs it. Because we believe that we're not the end-all of anything in the city. And that if we give away these people, God's going to replace them and help us to carry on. So that's the mission, our mission, to be a part of God's mission. Finally, the completed mission. So if in Genesis 12 we saw the nations mentioned and we see Jesus in the Great Commission in Matthew 28 talk about the nations, then what do you expect to see at the end of time? Revelation 7, verses 9 through 12. Revelation 7, 9 through 12. John says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every, what's the word? Nation. There it is again. From all tribes, just in case, I like it because John wants to clarify, just in case you got confused by the word nations, and tribes, and peoples, and languages. Just to clarify, it was a lot of diverse people. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You see, the completed mission is one day God's mission will be swallowed up in an epic, joy-filled, multi-ethnic worship gathering. It's going to be... It's going to be crazy. It's going to be a, a, a party. There's going to be food. That's why Jesus said there's a, a wedding a feast. I mean, it's, it's going to be an amazing thing. If you don't like singing, I'm sorry. There, there's going to be none of this there. It, it's, it's all on. We're all focused. We're all, I mean, it, it's, it's, a, it's a multi-ethnic worship gathering from people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And I'm going to tell you something that's going to blow your mind. Because I actually had never heard it growing up in church. And it occurred to me, and I'm going to tell you something, that you're going to go home and you're going to tell somebody else today. But have you thought about the fact that if John actually saw that scene which God gave him, he saw you, if you're a Christian? You're in the Bible. That's pretty cool, right? Some of you need to go home and, and put that on Facebook or tell your friends. I'm, hey, I'm in the Bible. Have I shown you the verses yet that have me? Now, it wasn't like John looked out and goes, oh, hey, there's Steve and Mary and Susie. And it wasn't like that. But, it, but that was the multitude. All of us. 
joined with all the other nations and all the other people from all of all other times, worshiping together before the throne of Jesus. Now, here's the question. Will anyone be there because of you? Or does the mission terminate on you? You see, this thing's been rolling along long before my parents, parents, grandparents, parents ever even thought of being born. And long before we were ever around, and long after we're gone, if Jesus tarries and doesn't come back, this, this story, this great epic story of Jesus going among all the nations is going to continue. And by the way, this is one of the reasons I tell when I'm, when I'm discussing Christianity with somebody in Boston, they're like, well, how, how come Islam's not true or, or Buddhism's not true? What you, what? I said, well, the Christianity seems to be connecting with all cultures. You see, all the other world religions are predominantly one ethnicity, but, but uh, Christianity's not. Christianity is not a white religion. There, there are probably more Christians in China than there are in the United States right now. There are probably, I'm, I'm sure there are more Christians in Latin America than there are. So it is not an English-speaking white religion. It is a worldwide global religion that seems to be taking off in every culture. And if you look at a map of it today, it's all over. So God is doing that. He's been doing that. We'll continue to do that until the time comes. And here we stand. After the Great Commission, 2,000 years ago when Jesus gave that, and before this party, which is coming, and we don't know when it is. But how we live now can affect that. Now, let's close with five simple suggestions for living missionally, connecting your story with God's or his story. Number one, get serious about Jesus and stop playing with sin. Listen, if you're caught up with lust or greed, if you're, in, if you're uh, especially young men it seems to be, or you're addicted to porn, you need to break that. You will never be able to be on mission effectively as long as you're compromised. If you're greedy, if you're selfish, if you're materialistic, you need to repent of that because you will be compromised in your mission as long as you are compromised in your sin. Because you're not going to want to go tell your neighbor about Jesus if you aren't really living for him. If you have your little pet sin in your life, you can't tell your neighbor to repent of his or hers. So take it seriously. Repent of your sin. Secondly, repent of hijacking the mission. The thing most of us are guilty of here today is hijacking the mission of God. That Jesus Christ didn't die on the cross for you to do whatever you want to do in life. He came and died that you could be part of His mission. Do you realize doing whatever you want to do is exactly what got Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden? If God only ends up asking you to do that which you naturally want to do, who's God? You or God? You are. You just replaced your voice or God's voice with your voice. God calls us to do difficult things. God calls us to step out by faith, not by sight. And that requires some guts. Listen, if I gave one of my kids $20 and I told them to go to the grocery store and buy me milk and bread and cereal and they came home with, with uh, Cheetos and candy and, um, and, and beef jerky, I wouldn't look at them and go, oh, well, that's close. What are you doing with my money? And that's exactly what I think God says to some of His kids. I've given you life, health, peace, given you joy, and you're just trying to carve out as much happiness as you can in this life. I've given it to you for, so you can be on mission for me and find joy in that. Okay, thirdly here. 
Take a step this week to be on mission. Maybe you just want to pray for your team that's going out this week. Say, I'm going to set my alarm. I'm going to pray every day for the team uh, that's going to West Virginia. It's West Virginia, right? Or South, Southwest Virginia. Okay, yeah. You want to pray for them. Uh, you could do that. Um, maybe you know, want to pray for, um, pray for a missionary you know. I, I'm tired of people who tell me, I, I run into this a lot. Well, if I could just get this to happen, then I'll be on mission for Jesus more. If I'm, I'm just waiting for this to happen. I got to get this job. I got to get my kids out of my house. I got to get, you know, this this health thing taken care of. I got to get this surgery taken care of. I got to go buy this. I got to get a house. I'm trying to sell this other house. I'm trying to get lose this job or get this job or whatever. And we listen. We have enough excuses to just string those together till we go to meet Jesus, don't we? But this week, if you, you said, you know what, Thursday night we don't have anything going on. Let's invite that new couple across the street to come over for dinner. Or we're going to bake them some cookies and go over and bring them to them. Or I'm going to talk to that guy at work and grab coffee with him. I know the other excuse. I just don't know how Jesus could use somebody like me. All right, let's get this straight for a second. So the sovereign God of the universe who called all things into existence from nothing, every atom that's in your body right now, he called into existence from nothing. The one who sent his son to die on the cross to redeem you from sin, to make you his, he's looking at you and just throwing his hands up in there. I don't know how I can work in this person's life. They're just too difficult. No, let's, let's just be honest about it. It's not God. It's us. You see, God is far more willing to work in us than we are willing to serve Him on mission. Because basically, I don't know if you've ever told God, I don't think you can. You need to stop and think about that. (laughs) I don't think you can. Sure He can. I've seen Him use all kinds of people. So this week, start praying for that non-Christian you know. If you don't know one, start praying every day that God will bring one into your life. Pray for, um, invite someone over for dinner, carve out time for coffee, talk to a stranger on the plane. I love that. I, I have had some amazing conversations. Won't know till we get to heaven if any of them bore fruit. But I had some amazing conversations. I always thought it, it's interesting when people know that they're never going to see you again, they will just open up and blab. Oh, I've got all kinds of issues, questions about life. Like they won't talk to you if they know you, but they don't know you on the plane. They're like, this conversation is going to end, and I will never see you again, so let's talk. Fourthly here, pray, dream about how King Jesus might want to use you on mission. Think, pray about going. Maybe on one of these short-term trips. We're trying to look at, at, at bringing up a team maybe to Boston to, to do some stuff up there. If you're young, look at going to college in another community, maybe like Boston. We have 110,000 college students that meet within three miles of where we worship. There's a couple schools there. MIT, Harvard, Boston College, Boston University, Northeastern, and a bunch of small ones. Consider moving uh, to work in another city. We have a couple in our church, no no joke, who literally moved to Boston. He he, He has a job that gives him some freedom to be able to move for the sole purpose of mission. He's not on staff. He's a software engineer. And, he, and he, it's, it's not his dream job. He does it so he can do mission. Maybe you need to pray about that. We have one short life to live. My wife and I started praying in 2006 about what God would call us to do with the rest of our lives. We said, okay, God, we got one shot. I could try moving up the bigger, better Baptist church ladder. Um, I had an opportunity to become a professor. 
and it just didn't feel led to either one of those. And I said, God, give me somewhere that we can go. I don't want to move again. I want to move once. I want to move once, plant my flag, and see what Jesus could do in 25 or 30 years. God said, okay, you want somewhere hard. I'll, I'll give you somewhere. Uh, so he calls us to Boston. And we called it our big adventure. That's what we called it as a family before we moved. And, and it's been. It's been an amazing thing. And as we've stepped out in faith, we've seen him do some incredible stuff in our church and in the city. City on a Hill is a multi-ethnic, about 60% Anglo, 40% everything else uh, church. We, we're probably around 26, 27 years old, average age. Um, have probably one of the most educated group of people I've ever, I know of in the Southern Baptist Convention. But yet people who love Jesus deeply. We have 100% of our average worship attendance enrolled in community groups. People not just going to a Bible study, but really sharing their lives together, on mission together. We had a young man, Drew, who recently um, graduated from Tufts Medical School, came to Boston, um, bright young guy, um, got engaged, uh, started, dating, or started dating this Christian girl. She brought him to church. He ends up meeting Jesus. He just graduated, got placed at a prominent hospital in Los Angeles as an uh, orthopedic surgeon resident. A year ago, he didn't know Jesus. Now he wants to be a godly husband, a godly father on mission for Jesus. Those are the kinds of people we get to invest in and make an impact on. Um, it's an incredible opportunity. And finally here, rather simply, and I'll close, write your own eulogy. Now what do I mean by that? Well, in Kentucky, I did, I did 100 funerals as a pastor. Um, it's, it's a terrible thing to be told you're good at something like that, but I was told multiple times, you do a great job with a funeral. I consider it a great honor to speak at the end of someone's life. I'm, I know Thurman does as well. To, to, to have those few words to the family and friends and people like that. Um, and I could tell you that the, of, of all the funerals I did, the, the most incredible ones are the, the ones that were the greatest joy and honor for me to do were the ones that were well written before I got there. You know what I'm saying? person's life was so overwhelmingly a testimony of God's grace and mission that when I got up to speak, all I had to do was go, you all know her. You remember the life she lived. You know how she loved others. That's just an example of what King Jesus does in a person's life. How will you use yours? And, and those were incredible. For me, that's a very realistic, actually, talking about eulogies is a very realistic, kind of close and personal Thing because in August of 2009, we started our core group meetings, but in October of 2009, on October 13th, I went to bed one night, just like all of you will tonight, um, and at 12.10 a.m., my heart stopped. I had a cardiac arrest. If you don't know what that is, not a heart attack, it, a, a traditional heart attack. It's basically electrically, your heart just stops firing. And mine stopped. I began to have seizures, and my wife woke up, and uh, she... she Gave me CPR for eight minutes while the EMTs were getting there. They hit me with a defibrillator. My heart started back up. They took me to the um, Tufts New England Medical Center, put me in a medical coma for two days. Did not know whether I was going to wake up and, and even know my name or whether she was going to be taking care of me the rest of my life. Uh, if you don't know the stats, 95% of people who have a cardiac arrest away from the hospital never go home from the hospital. And many of those who do, do have some kind of brain damage. Two and a half days later, I woke up, and I told people I had no more brain damage than I did before. 
When I woke up, the doctor said, this doesn't happen to healthy people. We're, we're going to run tests. There's something wrong with you. We're going to run EKG and, and, and uh, do a catheterization and all of that to see what's wrong. And yet, here's two things that came out of the whole experience. The first one was right then and there, I had a peace. I remember the moment the doctor said, we're going to figure out what's wrong with you. I didn't know, I, I, I tell people this, I did not know whether they were going to say, you need a new heart or what, but at that moment, I had never felt in my entire life more in the hand of God. Like, it, honestly, you know what the thoughts were in that moment? It's going to be okay. Not, it's going to be okay, like they're going to find nothing. But it's going to be okay because you're in King Jesus' hands. And I had a peace through the time I was in the hospital. But the other thing that happened was I spent, after nine days in the hospital, they ran all these tests, they found nothing wrong with me. So either it was a miracle and I was healed or God protected me. Um, but I have a defibrillator in my chest that I carry from it. But the other thing that happened was just like anyone else, if you had gone through that, you would ask the question, was I living my life well? Would, would I want to stand before King Jesus and give an account for my life? Now, I knew I was, I was a sinner. So I, I, that, there wasn't any bones before that. I knew that I was a sinner. So Jesus was my, what I was clinging to. But in terms of how I was investing and living my life, I, knew, I felt a great peace that if I had gone on to be with Jesus, then my wife and my kids and those who were involved in the core group of that church at that point would have said he was giving his life for something big. And, and I want you to have that sense as well. So what are you giving your life to? What is your time being spent on? What is your energy being spent on? Listen, I understand. You may not be able to go out like you used to. You may not be able to do things like you used to. You may not be able to travel like you used to. You can be a prayer warrior. I had a 101-year-old lady in my last church. I remember doing her funeral. Teresa's shaking her head. She remembers him. Ms. Carney. She never married. But that woman prayed for me and prayed for the church and prayed for everyone she knew. And I remember I'd go visit her, and she said, Honey, you don't need to come visit me. You go tell those people who don't know Jesus. You go talk to them about Jesus. <laughs> and she'd give me her little tie check <laughs> to take to church. But she, she loved other people and wanted to make her life an impact, even though she couldn't even get out of the house. That's how I want to be, if God tarries. I close with Matthew 24. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world and as a testimony to all nations, then the end will come. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you've given your life for the nations. Not just so a bunch of white people will be in heaven or, or, or black people or Asian people or um, Hispanic people. Lord, you gave your life for a people made up of individuals from every tribe and tongue and nation. I pray, Lord, that we would understand our part in your mission, this great story that you are writing. We will play our role and serve you well. And then one day when we stand before the throne, we would be honoring to you. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. 
I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I could help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.